We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Well, thank you, Joel and gang. Uh, last night, um, I was reading about Gurkhas. Now, Gurkhas are uh, a Nepalese warrior class that were commissioned by the British in the 20th century to defend the Commonwealth, and uh, they were known as these great warriors. They would carry, it was said that they would carry a rifle in one hand and a kukri in another hand. Kukri is that blade that bends forward. And it was said that a Gurkha would not be allowed to resheath that blade until he drew blood. And so sometimes he had to draw his own blood in order to resheath that kukri. They were also known for being committed to warfare. They were uh, always willing to take missions that other people would not take. And so one time the British higher-ups went to the Gurkhas to ask him to do this particular mission, and they said, we're going to bring you in airborne, you're going to jump out, and then you're going to do some ground control. To the surprise of the British officer, the Gurkhas all refused. And uh, the next day, one of the Gurkhas came back to the officer and was like, listen, we, we've thought about it, and we want to accept the mission, but on two conditions. He says, okay, what are those conditions? And he said, well, one, we want to uh, make sure that we land in a marshy soft area we're not used to falling and so we want to do some want to land someplace where there's not rough terrain or rocks and the british officer said that shouldn't be a problem we're going to have you come in uh on top of a jungle so you shouldn't have any any rocks or anything like that what's the second condition and he said the gurkha said well uh, we want the plane to fly really slowly and not no higher than 100 feet off the ground and the British officer said, well, that's not going to work. That's not even enough time for your parachute to, to deploy. And the Gurkha turned and looked at him and said, parachute? You didn't say anything about parachutes. We'll go anywhere with a parachute. That's a true story. I think sometimes the church could use some Gurkha-like commitment. So committed to Christ that we, couldn't even, we can't even say No. But oftentimes our commitments are not because we're unwilling, but because we don't know what those commitments are. And today as we close out 2 Timothy, we're going to see at least one commitment God wants every single one of his people to make. And so today we're going to see a particular commitment we are all called to make out of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so if you are not already there, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a bunch in the back over there. Um, so last week we were commissioned to continue in Scripture because it is Scripture that makes us adequate and Scripture that equips us to be and to become what God is calling us to be and become. Chapter 3 closes out referring to Scripture, how it makes us adequate and equipped for all the good and great things God has in store for us. And so the application was to continue in Scripture in order to become what God is calling you to be. And I challenged you all to, who were here to read 2 Timothy all the way through to where we come to kind of this pinnacle because tonight is the last chapter in this great book. It is the final chapter. Paul is on his way out. He knows he's about to go be with the Lord, and he is in Rome, and he is in prison, and we're going to get these final words that he writes to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. These are the final canonized words of the apostle Paul, and here's what we're going to see. There should be a slide popping up. We're going to see the charge. We're going to see the challenge, and we're going to see the confidence. 
we're gonna see that every Christian is charged with something, and that is to communicate scripture. We're gonna see that we have a challenge, and that is to commit to ministry. And then we're gonna see that there is confidence, that there is a crown coming, and we can be confident in God. So the charge, the challenge, and the confidence. And can we get that slide on the back screen as well? So here we see the charge in verse one. Paul writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. So Paul closes this last chapter and this last letter of his life by charging Timothy in light of God and Christ's presence, in light of the judgment to come, in light of the second coming of Christ, and in light of Christ's millennial reign. And all of these themes are actually gonna pick back up in this last chapter, but it begs the question, as Paul is about to give this charge to Timothy, why does he front load it with all these theologically rich terms? Why is it so loaded in the very beginning? Well, if you were to ask someone, what is the greatest inevitability of all the human experience, they're most likely going to say death. Death is the greatest inevitability for us all. 100% of people die 100% of the time. I don't know if you know that, but that most people, if you gave them time to think about it, they'd say, yeah, death is probably the greatest inevitability. But the Bible says that the greatest inevitability is Christ's kingdom agenda. And if Christ's kingdom agenda is the greatest inevitability, and if you as a Christian have been charged to take part in that kingdom agenda, knowing Christ's inevitable kingdom agenda motivates you to accept the charge. And so if that perspective is a little bit challenging to grab onto, think about it like this. Sometimes we can look at this present world that's passing as if it's the coming world. But the truth is, this world is passing and there's one coming. And sometimes we get that switched. We treat the passing world, this one, like it's coming, and we treat the coming world like it's passing. And so we've got to keep in perspective God's kingdom agenda in light of everything that we're doing. And so Paul front loads his charge to Timothy by just laying all this out from the very beginning. And so it's gonna stay with us this entire time. Keep it in the back of your mind. And in verse two, we get the specific charge to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Okay, Ruxon Ton Logan, it's my alma mater, Dallas Seminary. Pastor Mel, you know what I'm talking about. Dallas Seminary grad. And here, this, this notion of preaching the word is primarily referring to elders. But we saw back in 2 Timothy that that also extends to congregants in the church because it's the elders who teach others to uh, be faithful to these things referring to scripture. And so it's not exclusive to that. Communicating scripture is something that all Christians do. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so preaching calls to mind the role of a herald who's been given a message has the responsibility to take the king's message to the king's subjects. That's what preaching is. That's what the term keruson means. 
And so preaching God's word is declaring what God has said to God's people so that they may obey it, that they may believe it, and that they may conform their lives to it in order to conform to the image of Christ and his kingdom agenda. And so Christians, since Christians, and every Christian is a citizen of the kingdom of God, communicating his agenda is part of our responsibility. And when Paul charges Timothy, he says, be ready in season and out of season, in favorable times and unfavorable times. The word good season or in season is the word eukairos. It means good times. And the word out of season is kairos. It means bad times. And so our charge to communicate scripture is, just not, is not when people just agree with us. We've also been charged to communicate scripture in bad times, when people disagree with us. And Paul jumps immediately to what that disagreeing time looks like in verse three. He says, for the time, kairos, will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That time has come. Churches all across this country and all across Europe have completely abandoned the Bible. They've rejected the notion of truth for error and have canonized error as truth. And so this is happening all over the place. And it's simply accumulating teachers who fill your ear with what you want to hear. And it just changes with the times. What we want to hear this ear, these ear-scratching words are different from season to season. And that's why preaching must be priority in the church because God's word never changes. And so, as a citizen of the kingdom of God have been charged to communicate scripture in these times of goodness and in times of not-so-goodness. There was a, a Navy officer who was sailing a ship at night and he saw a big light out in front and he assumed that this was a big ship coming and this Navy officer was the highest ranking captain in the, new, in the US Navy at the time. And so he gets on his bullhorn and he says, move 10 degrees south so we don't crash and click hangs up. And he hears a voice that comes back to him and it says, I shall not move, you move 10 degrees north so you don't crash. Now this irritated this high-ranking captain, and so he gets on his bullhorn again and says, I am a captain in the United States Navy, and I say to you, move 10 degrees south so we don't crash. And he heard back, I shall not move. You move 10 degrees north so you don't crash. And he gets back on the speaker, did you hear what I said? I am a captain in the United States Navy. You need to move. And the voice comes back, yeah, but I am a lighthouse. God's word is the beacon by which we conform our lives to. It doesn't move, we do. It doesn't change, we do. We conform our lives to the beacon of God's word. So preaching does primarily two things. It should teach and encourage you, and it also should rebuke and exhort you. And so that we can conform our life to the light of God's word. And who knows, your communication of scripture may be the preventative medicine 
that avoids the crash altogether. We just do not know. But whenever we communicate scripture, we are posting ourselves as a beacon of truth for the world to avoid or to crash into because guess what? God's word is inevitable. It is not changing. What God says remains forever. It does not move. And so that's why preaching must be priority in the church, and that's why it must be priority in your life to communicate Scripture. And so the charge is for every Christian to communicate Scripture. And next we have the challenge. The challenge Paul, in verse five, is going to urge Timothy to do five things. We see five imperatives in verse five, and these imperatives serve like commands. He tells Timothy, be sober in all things. Timothy, you are just going to have to exercise self-discipline in life. This is a godly characteristic. And then he's gonna say, Timothy, endure hardship. There are times where you are just going to flat out suffer. That's part of it. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Proclaim all the good news that Christ is doing and then call people to orient their lives to the goodness of God. And then Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Complete what you set out to do. And so these five imperatives are Paul urging Timothy to commit what he has been tasked to do by God. And guess what? Every Christian has been tasked by God. Now what's interesting here is Paul is going to turn from Timothy and put the spotlight on himself and show how he has remained committed by giving his own obituary. In verse six, Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Notice how Paul views his life. Paul views his life like an Old Testament sacrifice, a drink offering before God that God receives, that is pleasant to God, that God says, Paul, I see your commitment that you've made and I receive it, I love it. Thank you for pouring out the last drops of your life in commitment to me. So Paul is an example of one who has remained committed to ministry to the last drops of his life. And then in verse seven, he'll describe what that commitment looks like. In verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. Now, prior to Paul's conversion, he was a wicked man who fought against Christians. And like all of us prior to our conversion, we were, we were pretty wicked too. And like some of us, we got in fights not worth fighting for. And we might even still have those emotional and physical scars as proof of that. But that does not mean that there are not fights worth fighting fighting for and Paul fought the most worthy battle worth waging for his entire life he fought to keep his life committed to Christ until the very end Paul gave his all to Jesus he held nothing back in his commitment to what God had called him to do and it begs the question Logan are you seeking to commit your life to Christ according to what God's word says are you seeking to commit your life to Christ? Are you seeking to give your all to Christ? To commit your life to what he has tasked you to do? And then Paul will say, I have finished the course. In other words, your commitment to Christ is not just starting the Christian race. Your commitment to Christ is not just running the Christian race, but you must finish the race. It means nothing for an athlete to come out of the blocks. 
It means nothing for the athlete to run 90 meters in the 100. And so Paul is a man who has been a lifelong athlete for Christ and who has ran until his life has literally ran out. There is no end until you are finished in your commitment to Christ. There was a man who, as soon as I uh, became a believer, he discipled me, and uh, it was really one of the sweetest times of my life, and he kind of set the trajectory for many things that I've continued even to this day. And we would read our Bibles regularly. We, would, we fervently shared our faith. That was kind of our thing is we would go, we would go door to door, we would go to the mall, we would just share our faith. And I thought this is just, you know, th- this is what we do. And well, we would pray publicly, we would pray for people, we would do, I mean, it was just, it was a wonderful time in my life. And then a few years go down the road and as this man sees, rounds his life the course of his life as he rounds the corner and he kind of sees the last stretch of his life, regret sets in and, and bitterness and he feels that his ministry hasn't quite worked out like it should. And he feels that things didn't quite pan out, his faithfulness didn't quite pan out like it should. And so he's, for the past two years, has been in complete isolation. He's turned off his phone. He doesn't read his Bible. He doesn't share his faith, and he quit praying. How he finishes, I I do not know. It breaks my heart, but I, I do not know. But what I do know is that God has given each one of us the task of running and finishing the Christian race. Every single one of us. And then Paul says, I have kept the faith. This is the summary statement of his commitment to ministry, that he has kept the faith. This would be his, on his obituary, I have kept the faith. That's it. And what's interesting, all three of these verbs, fighting, finishing, and keeping, are perfect tense verbs, meaning that these are things that Paul started in the past, and they have been characteristic to to his person all the way to this present moment, that he has characteristically fought the right fight. He has characteristically ran started, ran, and completed the race. It was always in his mind to do so. And it was characteristically part of his worldview to keep the faith until the end. It was part of, that was part of his mindset when it first began and it remained with him all the way to the end. And I often wonder why sometimes we falter in our commitments to ministry. And I think there are a variety of reasons. Sometimes we get into ministries we should have never have gotten into. There's a variety of reasons for why we falter in our commitment to ministry. But I can think of one pretty good example. If you've ever seen a a horse-drawn carriage, you will see that these horses always have blinders on. And the reason is, is because God designed horses to have their eyes on the side of their head because it gives them this great peripheral vision for them to uh, to spot predators out in the prairie. And so whenever you put blinders on, it removes that periphery and it constrains their perspective to where they become kind of myopic in tunnel vision. And so now they're blind to the bigger picture. We falter in ministry because of the things that blind us to the bigger picture of what God is doing in his kingdom agenda. Oftentimes, if we can just keep in perspective the big picture of God's kingdom agenda, our kingdom commitments become kingdom accomplishments. And so we've got to keep in perspective this grand trajectory of what all of God is doing in human history, that there's this inevitable 
kingdom agenda that we are taking part in now. And it's not passing. This world is passing. This kingdom of darkness is passing. It's not coming. And so we need to seek to be people as we desire to remain committed to our ministry to keep in perspective what God is doing and what God has called us to do. So that is the charge and the challenge. Next, we have the confidence. So in verse six, we saw Paul's imminent passing. He says, my life is being poured out. In verse seven, we see Paul's irreproachable perseverance, that this is a man who is committed and does not back down. He strives to persevere in ministry. And then here in verse eight, we see his inevitable prize. And the purpose of this is to give you bullet point number three, the confidence. God wants you, Christian, to be confident in your everyday life. God wants you to be confident, but confident in him. And when you're confident in God, everything else is affected. You can be confident in little arenas in life and not be confident in other arenas of life, but when you are confident in God, you you are invincible everywhere you go. So God wants you to be confident, but he wants you to be confident in God, and this is what it looks like in verse eight. Paul says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Notice, that is a statement of fact for Paul. This is not a subject of debate. There's no wishful thinking here. He says, no, this is what the future looks like for me. There is laid up a crown of righteousness for me in heaven. This is not a matter of debate. This is absolute certainty. Is Paul confident in his future? Yes, and when you are confident in your future for what God has in store for you, you can be confident in the present in God. And he goes on to say, which the Lord, the righteous judge, we heard about the judgment earlier, will award or reward me on that day, that this is a day in time that is inevitable. It's part of God's kingdom agenda. It is not moving. It is not being taken off the calendar. It is coming, and it is moving second by second closer to this present moment. So just soak up Paul's confidence in God. Soak up Paul's confidence in the future. And notice how Paul went from his present persistence in ministry to focusing on his future crown of glory. Your perspective of the future will dictate how you live in the present. Knowing what's coming, knowing the inevitability of God's kingdom, knowing what God is doing in human history, knowing that all things are working together for the good, knowing that everything is gonna be summed up in Christ, all of human history moving in this particular direction, it gives you a certain confidence in God that he is in control and that you can trust him with your life no matter what your commitment to ministry may be. And this confidence is not just unique to Paul. It's confidence for all. Look at verse eight. Paul says, and not only to me, Paul speaking, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is saying that everyone can have the same type of confidence in their ministry that he does. This is not just unique to this great apostle, but every believer is called to walk in a certain kind of confidence in God about their future destiny. It is a marvelous thing to know that. And notice what else Paul is confident in. Jump down to verse 16. 
Paul says in verse 16, at my first offense, he's referring to his trial in Rome. He's in court. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. I don't know about you, but if I've committed myself to a ministry that lands me in jail and then all of my friends who also ostensibly committed abandoned me, I'm not gonna have much confidence in God at that point in time. I'm gonna be pretty crestfallen, downcast. I'm gonna be struggling. If the very thing God called me to commit to leaves me abandoned in a prison cell. Paul says, may it not be counted against them. But, verse 17, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. God is the one who provides divine enablement for your commitment to ministry. Throughout 2 Timothy, in almost every single chapter, we see at some point God divinely empowering people to do what only he can do. This is a passive verb. Paul is receiving God's power in order to do what God has called him to do. And so whenever I talk and share about things that seem impossible or that, oh man, I could never do that, I could never commit to ministry, I could never communicate scripture, guess what? That's okay. Because God is the one who's going to provide you the divine strengthening to do what only God can do. And that is the paradigm of the Christian life where we yield ourselves to God in order to do what God has called us to do. So the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that, purpose clause, through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. If you recall, just back in verse five, Paul told Timothy to fulfill his ministry. Well, guess what? We see here, Paul is confident that he has fulfilled his ministry to fully preach to the Gentiles. And so, even though no one, everyone deserted Paul, even though Paul stood alone in that earthly court, guess what? He is confident that the righteous judge of heaven stood with him in that earthly court. That the judge of heaven's court was right there with him. He says, the Lord stood with me. Is Paul confident in God? Absolutely. Even though he is abandoned by all in terrible circumstances, he says, the Lord stood with me. Heaven's judge was with me. If, if, if the judge of heaven's court is with me in this earthly court, then I can be pretty confident about the outcome. Is that true? You bet it is. Verse 17b, Paul says, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now, if I was divinely rescued out of one of the largest land predators in the world, that's also gonna give me some confidence. We saw last week that the Lord will deliver all. He says, last week we saw Paul said, everyone who seeks to live a godly life will suffer persecution, but out of them the Lord delivered me all, and he's going to deliver everyone. And there are many forms of deliverance. I would go check out last week if you don't recall that. But notice the two forms of deliverance here. Verse one, in 17, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And then in verse 18, Paul says, the Lord will rescue, rescue me from every evil deed and bring kingdom, kingdom theme again, 
To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. So right here, Paul says, uh, we see Paul's eternal perspective. He says, to glory forever and ever. He's got the big picture. The kingdom of God, God's kingdom agenda, and this is a, an eternal thing going on here. And so we see two forms of deliverance here, and this is kind of fascinating. We see one form of deliverance is out of the lion's mouth. We see an earthly and temporary deliverance there. But then Paul will also say, he'll deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So we see a heavenly and permanent deliverance there. In other words, Paul is so confident that God will deliver him on this side of glory or that side of glory. He is surrounded by God's deliverance, temporary and permanent, earthly and heavenly. When I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of uh, sci-fi. I'm not, I think sci-fi channel is still on, but there used to be that great Christian classic television series, Star Trek, the original series. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting show because a lot of catchphrases have uh, entered into our culture. You know, one being, beam me up, Scotty. And this is where mem the crew members from the Enterprise would teleport they, by dematerializing and then being sent on a beam to some other location and rematerializing. And it was really handy because they could go from the Enterprise to a planet, back up to the Enterprise, and then to some other planet, and then back up, and then change locations. And it was very handy, especially in times of danger. You just said, beam me up, Scotty, and poof, you were safe. However, the plot was often how the transporter would break and leave a crew member stranded. And so you were never that confident in Scotty. But one thing is for certain is that you can have perfect confidence in God's deliverance in your life on this side of earth or on that side of heaven. He can deliver you out of every location, out of every circumstances, all the way to the end of your life. God can beam you out of a flood. God can beam you out of Egypt. God can beam you out of a Jericho. God can beam you out of a belly of a well. God can beam you out of the lion's den. God can beam you out of the lion's mouth. God can beam you out by rapture. God can even beam you out by death by bringing you safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so Paul is exuding confidence, not only in the glory and the reward to come, but also in God's present deliverance, whether by earth or by heaven. He is surrounded and confident in God's deliverance, and so can you. And so Paul is confident and the reward and the deliverance. Now, not everybody's excited to see the Lord's appearing. Remember, Paul said, not only do I get this crown of righteousness, but all who loved his appearing. Not everybody loved the appearing of the, of the Lord. Look in verse 10. We see that Demas loved this present world. He fell in love with the thing that's passing away, not the thing that's coming. And so he deserts Paul. And then just as the faithful will be rewarded the crown of righteousness from the righteous judge. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith who did Paul much evil, the Lord will, same exact word, reward him according to his deeds. So here we see Paul is confident in something else. Paul is confident in the ultimate vindication of his faithfulness. That all the wrong done to him and all the evil done to him will one day be vindicated that all wrongs will be made right, justice will reign. And so Paul is confident even in this idea of ultimate vindication. That should inspire you, that things aren't just happening one day after another the same way they always have been and the same way they always will be. That there will be an end and that all things will be made right. Inoculate that into your worldview.
Verse, uh, verse 10, we also see that Paul can be confident in his confidants. He's got people around him that bring him confidence. We see in verse 10 that Crescens and Titus, they went and departed to fulfill other ministerial duties. They are committed and went elsewhere. In verse 11, we see Luke, the beloved physician, is with Paul. This is the gospel writer. Also in verse 11, we see Paul make a specific request for a guy named Mark to come. And so right now, Paul has already, he's got one gospel writer with him and he's requesting another gospel writer to come and visit him. Now this is really interesting. Look what Paul says about Mark in verse 11. He says, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now this is, if you recall in the book of Acts, Mark abandoned Paul in ministry. But we see here, and if you recall from chapter two of 2 Timothy, Mark has moved from a vessel of dishonor to a vessel of honor, useful to the master. And in verse 12, Tychicus, Paul sends to Ephesus, likely to carry this letter to Timothy. And then in verse 13, he makes a unique request to Timothy. He says, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. And so we have two requests here. One is physical, bring me a cloak, I need to cover my body. But then he has a ministerial request to bring the books. It's the word biblios. It's referring to the scrolls. It is scripture. And this is just so inspiring to me that even when Paul's life is at its very end, he has remained focused on the scriptures. Even to the last point where his life is being poured out, he has remained committed to ministry and remained in scripture. Amazing. And then in verses 19 to 22, we have the final names and the final greetings and the final written words of the great apostle Paul. We'll never hear from him again until we too are delivered from the righteous judge into his heavenly kingdom. And in verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. And then he says, grace be with you, plural, you all, to the church. Grace be with you all. According to tradition, Paul was beheaded at Alcae Salviae, which is about three miles south of Rome, around that year AD 65. But after everything we just read, Paul's confidence in God, I am certain that that frightening fate made no difference to Paul. For he was confident that not only would the Lord restore his head to his body, but that he would place a crown on his head. And so Paul is confident in the crown, he is confident in the deliverance, and he is confident in the ultimate vindication for his faithfulness to ministry. And so to put it all together, you church have been charged to communicate scripture. Preaching is priority in the church so that the church can then go and communicate the truth of God's word to the world around them. You've been challenged to commit to your ministry. Every single believer has ministry. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians that we facilitate, church leaders facilitate the coming together of the body so that they then can go do the work of ministry. And it's the church that builds the church. And God has uniquely equipped every single believer for the work of ministry. You are here to go do ministry. That is the purpose of why we worship the Lord 
and take part in his kingdom agenda. So you've been challenged to commit to ministry, and we do this all in this great, overwhelming confidence in God. That there is a world coming where those who love the Lord Jesus are going to be crowned. It'll be a glorious day. You have, you have confidence knowing that God's going to del- deliver you. It's not necessarily deliver, deliverance from a, uh, you know, liberation from a, an oppressive situation. It could be divine strengthening. It could be inner strength in that moment. Or it could be like Paul here, death is deliverance, where he safely brings you into his heavenly kingdom. All of these things give believers a unique and overwhelming sense of confidence. And so, so what? What does it matter? What's the application here? Commit to learning how to confidently communicate truth. You as the church have to commit to learning how to confidently communicate truth. You just gotta try it. When I... Uh, when I first got in, went into college, I, I, I didn't start college until I was 21. I wasn't trained, raised, even with college uh, as a goal in my life. And so when I went to college at the age of 21, it was a foreign concept to me. I had been working three years in manual labor, and I, I go into this place that was completely different. They were speaking a foreign language. I didn't understand, and I am being totally honest here, I didn't understand what a credit hour was, a major, a minor. I didn't understand academic advising. I didn't know what it, like, I had no idea because when I stepped into this world, they were speaking a completely different language. I had to spend the first year of my college learning college. I learned the vernacular. And I remember going into the academic advising office time and time again, and I would learn the key phrases in in order to communicate in that situation. And then I remember going and studying some of the hard sciences, and I remember, oh, okay, they're very, their terms in hard sciences are a lot more precise. They don't change from hard science to hard science like they do in the soft sciences, where things are, words are a little bit nuanced and there's a little bit of fluidity in words. And so I would go from arena to arena and learn the vernacular of all of these places. I got into student government. I learned how to speak uh, parliamentary procedure. And I would learn the vernacular for all these different arenas in life. And then I would try it. I would test it out. It's just like when you meet somebody who speaks a different language, but y'all share that language. They wanna try out that language on you. And so we as the church need to commit to learning how to communicate truth in all the various arenas of life, where you live, where you work, and where you play. How you talk where you live is not gonna be the same how you talk where you, play, where you work. Same is true for where you play. You're gonna have to learn the vernacular in each one of those places in order for you to communicate truth. And the ultimate, the first step is just trying it. You have to try it to learn it. And so commit to learning how to confidently communicate truth. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and I thank you that it doesn't change that it is a lighthouse, it is a wall that keeps out error, it is a pillar we can stand on. I thank you that you teach us not only to continue in scripture by reading it, but you've called us to communicate the truth of your word to the world around us. 
and that it's all worth it, that there is a world coming that we can taste it now, and that the more we taste it, the more we want it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would enable us by divine strength and the power of your Holy Spirit to commit to learning to communicate your truth to the world around us. Motivate us, God, because your kingdom is inevitable. And we thank you that you have charged us to take part in that wonderful glory. In Jesus' name.